Okay. All right, so we left off last week with four questions about this um, love that is innate and hidden within every Jew. The four questions were, what is the origin of the love and what is its, in other words, what is its basis? The second question is, what is the essence of love? What is this love trying to uh, achieve? And the third question was how one can inherit love. And um, finally, the last question is, how does this love also contain fear? Okay. Now, um, one second. I apologize. I'll be back one moment.
I apologize about that. Okay. So the four questions. The first question that the altar was going to address is the, that the love is an inheritance. Um, and then we're going to move on to the origin of the love. Those are the two questions we're going to deal with in the rest of, of, of the chapter. Now, so we're going to be starting at the paragraph that says the explanation is as follows, is as follows near the bottom of the page if you have the regular bilingual Tanya. Salter writes, the explanation is as follows. The patriarchs are truly the chariot of God, and therefore they merited transmitting to their descendants coming after them a nefesh ruach and neshama from the ten holy spheres of the four worlds of Atzils, Bri, Yitzir, and Nasiya, to each according to his station and according to his works. That sentence is very, very, very dense. Okay? What I want to do, um, I don't think by the way we're getting past that sentence today, but what I want to do is I want to first break that sentence down into the most simplest of ideas so we can kind of get a, a handle on this. Okay. So the first thing is that it says that the patriarchs were the chariot of God. Okay. Now, I'm going to bracket that. I don't know what that means. But that's, but we're going to take that for granted, that they're the chariot of God. Okay. Being the chariot of God allows them to do something. And that thing that allows them to do is to transmit to their descendants, coming after them forever, something. And then it gives us a lot of Kabbalistic words, a nefesh, a ruach, a neshama, from the ten holy spheres of the four worlds of Atzil's Briyatzirasiya. Okay, we're going to take all of those Kabbalistic words and we're going to collapse it into one idea. Okay, that we're just going to, for today's purposes, call that a godly soul. Okay, so if we now simplify the whole sentence, what it says is that the patriarchs were the chariot of God, and therefore they merited to transmit to their descendants a godly soul. Okay, now. Let's use a little bit of logic. And what would be the case if the patriarchs were not the chariot of God? Think about that for a minute. Someone give me the answer. What would be the case if the patriarchs were not a chariot for God? You have to unmute yourself, otherwise I can't hear you. Would the descendants then have uh, more of an animal, animalistic soul? I don't remember the Hebrew term for it. Right, you have a godly soul and an animal soul. Okay, well, right, but let's, let, well, let's, let's leave the animal soul aside. Would the descendants have the godly soul? That's the issue. Yeah. Would they have the godly soul? Yes, wasn't it given at Mount Sinai? No, it says here, if we're going to take that, that the chariots were the, the, the patriarchs were the chariot, and therefore they merited transmitting their descendants after them a godly soul. So if they wouldn't have been the chariots, would they wouldn't have been a chariot to God, would their descendants have had a godly soul? Apparently not. Apparently not. Okay. Now, okay. Now let's take one more look at this sentence, okay? It says, they merited transmitting to their descendants a godly soul. Now, what does merit mean? In Hebrew, the Hebrew for that, um, zachu. What is that word, zachu, they merited? What does it mean to merit something? If you merit something, did you did you do it on your own? I would think so. Okay. Give me an example of something that you do on your own that you merited. 
I can't think of anything, but usually you say like, you know, somebody, you know, just does something and, you know, by their own merit. Right. But, but if they get something based on merit, isn't that being given by someone else to them in recognition of something they did? Right. If I, if I make really good rye bread and now the rye bread is really good. Did I, we say I merited the really good rye bread? I put a lot of effort. No. On the other hand, right? On the other hand, um, if I, you know, put a lot of effort in giving this great class and someone were to then say, you know, we really appreciate, we feel that you really merit this, you really deserve this. Here's a, as a recognition, here's a gift of some really tasty rye bread, right? You see the difference? Right? Right, or think like of it just like a medal. You and one's coming from somebody else. Right, so yes, you do something to earn it in some sense, but it's not something that you are getting of your own power. It's being given to you, conferred to you in recognition for what you've done. Right? Um, it, it, it reminds me, right, that, um, the, 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 I mean, this is not really the same idea, but traditionally in many cultures that you have someone crown the king or occasionally the queen, right? Whether it's representative of the church or whatever it is, but, but like the idea is that this is being conferred on, you merit the crown, but someone needs to give it to you, right? You can't go and take it yourself, right? That's, that's not the idea, right? So it just reminds me of the, when Napoleon crowned himself emperor, right? He grabbed the crown and put it on his own head. As if I don't need anybody to confer this on, make it take it for myself, right? That's not, that's not this idea of schus, of zachu. That's, yes, on some level, it's, your, it's, it's, it's in recognition of an achievement. But it's not the product of your effort. It's the recognition of your achievement. It's the recognition of your effort. Does that make sense? Okay, so now that we add that, fo that focus, that it's not that they achieved transmitting a godly soul by being a chariot, but they merited by being a chariot. So who's actually conferring the godly soul on all the subsequent generations? Hashem. Hashem, right? But he, he's, he gave them that, privilege that merit in as a recognition and response to what because they Their effort well okay but more specifically they what specifically that the patriarchs did they um they uh brought about words of torah in the world they spread words of torah in the world but that's not what the text says they did a lot of good things right but what does it specifically say in the text? They were a chariot for Hashem. They were a chariot. So in recognition of their being a chariot, God gave them a special gift of being able to transmit the godly soul to their subsequent generations. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Now... So what I want to do is I want to first talk about this. Why is it something that God has to do? Okay. Before the patriarchs, did people have godly souls? I don't know what a godly soul is right now. I'm going to, we're going to bracket that. Every all of these terms we're going to elaborate on. But before the patriarchs, were there, did people have godly souls? Does anyone know the answer to that question? Adam and Eve had godly souls. Adam and Eve had godly souls, right? But so what changed by the patriarchs? What's the difference? That beforehand, godly soul was something. Yeah, you had to choose to make yourself a vessel for the godly soul. And if you did a good enough job, you received one. And if you do something in order to make yourself a vessel, in order to receive a godly soul, could you do something that causes you to lose that godly soul? Does that make sense? Okay. So 
if you want to think about it, think about it like, um, I mean, this is very crude, but if we were to imagine that the godly soul is money, you can do things to earn money and then you can be stupid and lose all your money, right? That makes sense? So before the patriarchs, a godly soul was something that a human being had to be a proper vessel for. They had to refine themselves. So if you were a really crass person, a really base person, a really coarse person, you didn't get a godly soul. And even if you got a godly, godly soul, if you misused it, if you didn't live up to it, you would lose it. Okay? In that sense, a godly soul was much more like something we think of like prophecy, right? In order to be a prophet, you have to work very hard and achieve a level of spiritual refinement, and then maybe you'll be granted prophecy, and you could also lose it if you're in, you know, don't behave properly. What changed because the patriarchs were a, were a chariot is that they now were given a special power by God to transmit the godly soul as an inheritance. Now, an inheritance, and this is very important in Jewish law, does anyone, an inheritance in Jewish law is not something that you choose to give or receive. Okay? People often don't know this, but in Jewish law, if somebody dies, then their property automatically goes to their inheritors according to the laws that are prescribed in the Torah. They have no say on the matter. And not only do they have no say on the matter, the inheritors don't, can't refuse ownership. They become the owners whether they like it or not. Okay, so this is not something that you can, so the idea of inheritance is not something that you can earn or something that you lose, okay? Inheritance is built in. So for instance, the mission uses this as an example. If you have a one day old baby, meaning they've been born that day, and for whatever you know, the situation is, they're the legal inheritor of someone who dies on the day of their birth, they become the owner of that property. There's no choice on not in the bequeather, not in the recipient. Okay? So if the godly soul is now something that is bequeathed to us through inheritance for all time, then what does that mean? That means you can't earn a godly soul, but you also can't lose a godly soul. Does that difference make sense? Okay. Now, I'm going to throw this question out. I want you to take a minute or two to think about it. Is it the same godly soul that we're inheriting after the patriarchs er or had this merit? As the say, is that the same kind of godly soul that existed before the patriarchs? Is it the same or is it different? What, is, what do you guys think? Does anyone have an idea whether they think it's the same or different? I would say it's probably not different because I even, I don't have a very good example, but when in life, if you've changed how you behave, it doesn't mean that you're different or you have a different set of rules. You still might be the same person. You're just doing things from a different way. Right, but before, but, but before um, the patriarchs, a godly soul was something that you could gain or lose. And now a godly soul is something that you can't gain and you can't lose. You're either conceived and born with one or you're not. So is it the same? Is it the same kind of thing? I mean, th think about it on a human level. Think about what are the kinds of things about ourselves that we can gain and lose, like knowledge. Can we gain knowledge? Right, we can do that. Right, we learn. Can we lose the knowledge that we gain? Yeah. Okay. How about skills? Can we gain skills? And we can lose skills, right? Strength, relationships, right? There are a lot of things we can gain and all the things we gain, we can lose, right? What are some things that we cannot lose and we don't gain? 
maybe would it be like your like biological traits like your genetic traits like your eye color and like your skin okay. tone like those things okay but I rem- rem- maybe but remember what i what i said many times uh, about anytime we're using analogies about people we o- or we always want to avoid things that are purely physical because they don't carry over well into the analog right so you might be right but let's think of something that's more mental or philosophical or metaphysical or psychological or social, something that can carry over to a non-material analog. Can you repeat the original question? Something that you, something about you that you cannot, you don't gain and you can't lose. Personality, maybe. Okay. So certain fundamental personality traits, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I would agree that there are at some level certain kinds of personality traits, and we can debate what they are, but and we're not gonna do that now, but some of them you don't, you know, you're not gonna change in your life. They're just there's you're stuck with them. However, and I'm gonna add one little part to this question. Regardless of what your personality traits are, will your children necessarily have those exact same personality traits? Okay, so now I want you to think of something that not only you don't gain or lose, but your children can't gain or lose. If you have it, they'll have it. Such that it can't, that's by definition, so that, such that as long as you continue having progeny, it'll be true of them. Now, personality traits aren't going to work because personality is what differentiates people. And I have kids and they have different personalities and they're all my kids. So, you know, that, that, that's not going to work. We need something else. Would it be ancestry, your history? Your history. Um, so it, we, we could use it, we could use a concept of, of, of historical identity. That could work, right? Um, now that, that, that depends on, that depends on, on, certain, on, on certain views about, about how identity works, but we can go with that. Right? Definitely within the, within the perspective of Judaism, that's true, right? That your sense of lin- the, your lineage and that what, that what that demands of you, there is something about that that remains absolute. But let's, let's think of some other things. What about, um, what about your capacity for free will as a human being? Do you gain the capacity for free will at some point in your life and then lose it? Okay, if your children have capacity for free will, like that's intrinsic to be a human being. Okay, what about that your life has an estimable value, right? That your the, the value of your life can't be quantified in terms of commodities. Is that true about you? Is it true about your children? Will it be true about your children's children? Right. In other words, things that touch on the, our essential humanity, right? Those are things that necessarily you can't gain, you don't lose, and you necessarily pass on, right? Okay, so if we make, if we think about it, the godly soul before the patriarchs, was it something that was in a part of essential being or was it an add-on? Was it like a person, was it like a, it was like a skill or an experience or an achievement. And now if it's something that can, if it's something that can be transmitted for all generations, right? Inherited, it's become some kind of an essential feature of your being. Is that the same kind of thing? It's not. Okay. So it's not just that before the patriarchs, you had to earn a godly soul. And now you get one for free. You inherit it. It's not even the same kind of a godly soul. The godly soul that you earn is the power and ability to engage in certain godly activities, to have certainly godly experiences. But it doesn't have anything to do with your essential being, who you are at your core. Now the godly soul defines you in some way. It's not the same kind of thing. Okay? And so the, the first thing to realize is that this description of the godly soul that we're having 
is a radically different version of the godly soul than Adam had. What we're going to say in the subsequent chapter about the godly soul is only true at, from beginning with the patriarchs and onwards. It was not true of the godly soul of Adam. It was not true of the godly soul of Eve. It was not true of the godly soul of any of the people lived between Adam and Abraham and Sarah. Because those people, their godly souls, were, were something that they was something that was additional to who they were. It wasn't part of their, it wasn't part of their essential being. This is now, this isn't as part of our essential being. It defines the kind of creature we are at our core. And the way that the things that are essential to humanity define what it is to be a human being. And that's why they get passed on from every generation. All right. Now let's go backtrack a little bit and let's ask what does it mean that the patriarchs were a chariot? What is a chariot? Right? When was the last time you used a chariot? I would imagine you've never used a chariot, right? Okay. Who here has been horseback riding? Anyone? Okay. So of those of you who've been horseback riding, you, you've done the horseback riding where like you were actually in fully control of the horse or one of these horseback ridings where someone was leading the horse? Fully control, yeah? Okay. Now, so I will ask you to describe your first person experience. How would you compare, I'm assuming you drive, how would you compare riding a horse to driving a car? Subjectively, what is the experience like of driving a car versus riding a horse? Either one of you who've ridden a horse can answer the question. There is a point where the horse can do whatever he wants. He can rebel. The car he knows. can rebel. So how do you make sure that he doesn't rebel? Do you like beat the horse into submission all the time? No, you train him. What is, like, what, is it, what does it feel like? You're riding a horse. You feel like the horse can do whatever it wants, right? Mm. But what, what makes you confident that, that it's not going to throw you off? What makes you feel safe and secure? He's been trained. Okay. I think also um, he gains your trust and you work together as a team. You both trust each other. But that does that sound right? Right. There's this. You feel the horse. The horse feels you. That's when it goes well, right? That makes sense. Okay. The thing is, the horse because the horse is a living animal, right? The horse it does what it wants, okay? So you have to get the horse to allow you to take over, right? The horse has the horse. The horse and the horse has to has to al allow you to make decisions for what it's going to do, and then it. But it has to do them with its own power, with its own energy, with its own will. Okay. Now, the reason we're, we want to use an example of a horse or 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 another animal like that, as opposed to a person. If you're going to, if you're going to allow me to make decisions for you, why is that, right? Or if you're going to allow any other person to make decisions for you, why would you allow another person to make decisions for you? Because you trust them and what their what the decision they make for you. Okay. What? How do you get that trust? Because and I'm not talking when you're a small child and you trust your parents. I'm talking as an adult. Because they could have given you good advice before or suggested um, a choice for you to take and you had taken it and found it to be good and trustworthy. Okay. So one thing is, right, they've earned, they, that you have, you have, so what's happening here, and this is very important, is you have made a determination using your own intellectual faculties that they have a knowledge or wisdom or experience that makes what they say worth listening to, Right. 
Now that could be, as you said, as direct experience. It could also be that you're trusting some sort of an accreditation process, right? Like when a doctor tells you you should do something, right? You probably have not like done a study on the reliability of that particular doctor, but you assume that if they've been accredited as a doctor, they probably know what they're doing more than you, right? That's how most of us treat our doctors and lawyers and accountants, right? Um, what are some of the, so, so one idea is that your intellect has come to be convinced that this person knows of what they're talking about more than you do, and therefore it's worth listening to them, okay? What are some other cases in which you will do, allow someone else to make decisions and carry out their decisions rather than your own? Maybe because they have like a sense of authority over you, so you have to right. listen to them. Right. Okay. So another thing is the idea of authority. Now, authority, as my father says, is basically two rules. There are the two rules of authority. Rule number one is the boss is always right. Rule number two is that when the boss is wrong, the boss is still the boss. So see rule number one. Okay. Now, I know in all of our, like, I, we're all autonomous, independent people don't like that, but there really is authority, right? Um, I mean, the most quintessential example is the military, right? Where if somebody is if somebody is in charge, right? Um, and that's actually how modern governments work. How, modern governments work off of the principle of you respect the office, you respect the position, right? It doesn't matter who sits in that position, right? So we have a concept of social hierarchy, right? And that creates authority. And when you 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 have your mind, your intellect has convinced you that authority in and of itself is something that needs to be respected, right? Then you defer to authority regardless of who's in the authority position, right? Even if you don't think they're smarter than you, okay? So that's the second thing, right? So we have, you think that they know more than you, they're more, they're, they're wiser, they're more experienced, they're more informed, that's one possibility. Another is that you recognize their authority. What's a third possibility? You're unable to make the decision yourself. You're unable to make the decision yourself. What do you mean unable? Like you're not sure what to do and so they know better than you? That's the first category. Um, well, I was thinking if someone's like, um, perhaps someone's comatose. Okay, but then, but then they're not making, what I'm going to say is that they make decision, you have to carry it out. Not that they're making decisions because you're not, you're not, you're not on your, yeah. They're do they're there to borrow a former president's expression. They're the decider, um, but you're the one who carries it out. That the, no, that talking about that kind of a dynamic. What's another possibility? Because you'll get what? Because you'll get something out of it. Right, they bribe you. Right, and the sister of bribery, coercion. Right. So why do you listen to your boss at work? Not because they're really an authority figure, because you want to get paid, right? And then the opposite of that, right, is when, right, they tell you if you don't do it, they're going to make you suffer, right? The coercion, right? So, so you basically have that. Those are four categories. I don't think that there isn't actually another category where you allow someone else to make decisions for you. Okay? Where you really, like, let them take over the decision-making process. Maybe there's another one, I haven't thought about it. Now, but what do all these things have in common? If somebody is smarter than you, who has to make the determination that they're smarter, wiser, more experienced than you, and therefore you should listen to them? Who has to make that decision? You, if somebody is an authority, who has to make the decision that to respect authority and you do, you do. If somebody is offering to bribe you or pay you to do something, who has to decide that that's worth it? You, you. And lastly, if someone is threatening you, who has to decide that it's worth giving into their threats rather than standing your ground and not giving into what they want you to do? You. Yeah. Okay. Now, 
and therefore, as much as they're deciding, you're deciding to let them decide, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, you haven't really fully relinquished any control because you're the one that's decided to let them decide, right? The soldiers, they'll follow the authority until they won't, until they decide, well, no, this guy doesn't have a respect anymore. We're going to mutiny, right? Or the job is too difficult and the money's not worth it, so I quit, right? You, you know, even, God forbid, a person being tortured, if they decide that the principle is important enough to them, right, they, they can... People have done that, right? So there is this idea that a person is making the decision to allow the other person to decide for them. And you do that based on your own evaluation in your own mind. Sometimes that evaluation is more rational and thought through. Sometimes it's less, but it's you are making a decision. Does that make sense? Okay. Now. Given that, how do we feel about the following defense? I was only following orders. I was only doing what I was told. He threatened me. He paid me. Does that completely exonerate a person? Why not? Oftentimes they're using it as an excuse to try to get out of having a consequence. Right, but even if they're not trying to get, like, even if they're, like, but, but it's true, right? They did do all those things. But who decided that that was worth it, that they should listen, that they should trust? They did. They did. They did, right? So we can debate the extent of responsibility, but there's clearly some responsibility there, right? That makes sense? Okay, now let's go to the horse. Get back to the horse. Someone rides the horse into battle. Can you go to the, you go to the horse and say, why'd you do that? And the horse says, well, he, he paid me. He was going to give me really good carrots at the end. So I did it for that reason. Or he, he was beating me. Or I was afraid he was going to beat me. Or I recognize that human beings are inherently superior to animals and therefore we should, I should defer to human beings' will, right? Or I just figure he's smarter than me. He knows what he's doing. Like, is that what's going on subjectively from the horse? Okay. I'm going to ask you an interesting, I'll ask you an interesting zoological question. Why is it that we can ride horses and we can't ride zebras? Anyone know the answer to that question? Or you never thought about that question? Never thought about it. But we can't. You can't really, you can't really ride a zebra. I mean, you can physically get on the zebra, but it won't, it won't really work very well. Is it sort of like because one's domesticated? Okay, but now you've got to work backwards. Well, why don't we just, why can't we domesticate zebras? You can. They're, they're not really domesticatable. You know why? Zebras don't really travel. They travel in groups, but they don't really have a real herd mentality. Okay? They're animals that have this herd mentality where they have this natural sense to defer to another animal. So like in a horse, right? How do you try? Horse, this is true with horses, cows, sheep. You just have to find the one that all the other ones are following and like get a hold of that one and then... You got the whole herd, okay? Zebras don't really work like that. They don't have this, this natural deference to another creature. So you can kind of like train them into submission, but they don't have that domesticated quality that horses, sheep, goats, and there's, a, there's some animals that have this quality. They just have this, they have this instinctual deference to another creature. Right? That's why, you know, you could get, find the one sheep and then you get the whole, all the sheep to follow that one sheep, right? And that's almost done in an instinctual way. It's not that the animal is sitting there rationally thinking through what to do. Should I obey this person? Should I not obey this person? So the, 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 the real difference between like domesticating and just simply training, because there are many animals you can train, 
is that you can domesticate is you get the animal. Dogs also have this ability, by the way. Is you get the animal to have this in the instinctual deference that they have to the, mem- the, the, the leader of the pack or the herd or whatever, they somehow are able to transfer that on to a person or anybody in a particular role. And so there's almost this instinctual letting you take over. Now, do people really have that as a general rule? Do we, do we just like instinctually let other people take over for us? And I know we like to say that we have a herd mentality, but it usually only shows up when like there's a mob or something. And even then it's not really like that. Well, as a, as a child, you do, right? As a baby. Children are different. Children, children are different because children aren't fully developed yet. So I want to talk about, I'm talking about like a fully developed animal. Like a fully developed horse, right? The reason why, even though the horse is its own animal, can do its own thing, can rebel against you, it, 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 it has this instinct that can be tapped into. It's not automatic, it's like a car, that it will, it will pick up on you and defer to you. And if you respect that and, 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 and play that role correctly, then it almost follows you as if, as if you're its head. And that, can, that bond can go quite deep to the point that people are extra expert riders, right? That, that it almost becomes an organic whole. So there's this instinctual, um, irrational, and I don't mean irrational in the sense of it's not well thought out and it's stupid. It just means then it doesn't go through our normal reasoning process of allowing this other being to take over your decision-making. That's something that herd animals have. Herd animals like, like cows and sheep and horses, etc. Okay. And so, and, 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 and there's, and there's this almost having to be in touch and feel. Now, what does it say now if the patriarchs were the divine chariot? What does that mean? In what way did they serve God? Did they serve God because they understood that God was wiser than all of his creations? Or because they understood that God's God's word, so he's entitled to authority? Or did it because they understood that God gives out the best gifts, so you should, you know, get his rewards? Or is it because they were afraid of God's punishment? What motivated their service of God? What, were, what was it that they made them decide they should serve God? If they're being described as the chariot, they're being described as like a bunch of horses carrying a person. A feeling? A feeling, right? They felt this innate deference to God. In other words, it wasn't that they were using their rational minds to say, I've come to understand God. And this is why I will serve him. Their relationship to God was much more like the relationship of a horse to the rider, where the rider is an expert rider and the horse is, oh, is, 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 has been well broken and well trained in. That it, it's, a, it's an issue of feeling. They, the horse feels this deep, submission not the word, it's this deep, allowing the rider to take over its will, but it's actively doing things. It's not passive. It's, it's proactive in one hand and completely deferential in the other hand. And the patriarchs were able to bring themselves and live in that state. That their service of God was not motivated because they had made a decision in their minds of, because I understand that God is X, Y, and Z, therefore I will serve him. Now, the way Hasidus understands this idea as transcending the normal human mode of being. So whereas the horse is beneath the human, beneath the rational mode, the patriarchs were above it. Now, the common factor between being above and below is that you don't, you're not rational. You're not sitting there in your mind and thinking, well, who and what is God such that I should serve him? Now, the differences of the horse is a horse is incapable of being rational. Right? It's a purely instinctual creature. The patriarchs were perfectly capable of being rational, and they were able to transcend that rationality to have this, this point of being in sync with God. I have a friend of mine who likes to say that the patriarchs and matriarchs, they had chemistry with God. They could just feel 
<laughs> so did Avraham, okay, now I, I realize, I realize there are a few exceptions to this and, and they're discussed in Chassidus, but as a general, did Avraham or Yitzhak or Yaakov, do they have to be told what God wants from them? If we're following this analogy, and the answer is no, they could feel it. And it actually, later on in time, it says that this is not just true of their behavior or the words they said. It was, they were able to bring this into every level of their being. So I like to use the following example. If Avram found a joke funny, why did he find it funny? Because he understood it. Well, if he's, if he's made his whole being a chariot to God, then what would trigger his sense of humor? Oh, that like someone else is laughing. That like God is laughing and he's just sort of... That's right. God must to find something funny and that gets kind of, right? It's like the rider has this desire to go forward and so the horse goes forward, right? When they're in sync with each other, if Avram is laughing at a joke, it's because on some level he feels that, how God finds it funny. If Sarah's upset about something, what does that mean? What's she picking up on? Hashem is upset about something. Yeah. If, if Rivka wants something, what is she picking up on? That God wants it. Now, that is a very different mode of being and serving God. Like, that is not something that remotely we are used to thinking about at all, right? When we talk about a relationship with God, we think about there's me, there's God, God is what he wants, and then I have to think about God, and like, like in human relationships, right? And we can use the analogy of, of a chariot, right? Was it pulled by animals, like a rider? Um, but that only goes so far as an analogy because at the end of the day, that, that, that being in sync is only with regard to, you know, the movements of the animal. Okay. So the patriarchs, they weren't, they, they, they were operating in a very different mode of being than, than the human mode of being. Human beings are able to give over and serve others when we recognize, understand something, and we become convinced. And so we're always operating with our sort of like our own autonomy underneath it all. And the patriarchs are somehow able to transcend that. Now, if you can ask me, how did they do that? My answer is going to be, I'm not one of the patriarchs, am I? So there's a limit to my ability to explain it. Okay. One other important point. Why do people ride horses or go on chariots? What's the purpose of that? Travel. Right. Well, why don't you just use your own legs? It's faster. Yeah. Or you're going over a longer distance and you can go on foot. Right. So the, the, the way Hasidus su summarizes it is that it's more effective to get you where you want to go if you're using the horse or the chariot than if you would go on your own power, right? Your, your ability to travel is extended. Well, if, if they're a chariot to God, it also means that they're bringing God places where God, so to speak, wouldn't get to on his own. So it's not that God is sitting up in heaven. They're somehow able to bring God into reality beyond the way God initially is, right? So being a chariot both describes the way they serve God and also what they achieve in that service. They're not just making the world a better place. They're bringing God to a place where God wasn't already. God, you know, whatever, whatever the metaphysics metaphysical is going to be, wouldn't be in his, on his own. Right, just like the, the chariot, the horses, they take you to a place you wouldn't get to on your own because it's too far, you can't get there fast enough. So when we're speaking about when we're speaking about the, the patriarchs, we have to understand the patriarchs were were a phenomenon. They were not normal beings. And this is something that that kind of service that deserves recognition, that deserves some special accommodation. And what did they earn in as a result of this kind of service was the transformation of, of godly souls from being 
an add-on, an achievement, something that you could have, to something that would be intrinsic and an essential and passed on to all of their descendants for all time. So it's important to understand that patriarchs changed the spiritual metaphysics of everything through this service. They, 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 they played the game so well that the rules were changed as a result. So now what we need to do is we understand and now we need to go back and unpack this. What is this godly soul thing? Okay. And what new features does it have that previously it didn't have that are the result of the, this special service of the patriarchs? Okay. Um, okay. Are there questions? I was going to stop 10 minutes too, but I stopped five minutes too. Questions? No? Um, actually, I do, I do have a question. Um, Go for it. Does that mean that the patriarchs did not have free will if they were following completely God's will? Well, that is a very good question. The answer is... They had free will, but their free will didn't have that. Go back to the horse, right? The horse, right, at the end of the day, it's self-driven. It's self-motivated, right? The horse is not a machine. It's not a robot. It's not a puppet, right? That's why yeah. if, like, if, if you push the horse beyond what it's comfortable with, what it's capable of, it will rebel. It will throw you off, right? So... We have to understand is that they they wished they were right and we're, so we're saying we're not saying that they were God's robot or God's puppet they were God's you know chariot chariots pulled by horses or some other animal right so the way you have to think about it is that our normal way we access free will is by having ego and I don't mean ego in the negative sense I mean mean ego in the sense of a distinct sense of self that sits and rationalizes between choices. Right? Think about it when you experience your exercise of free will most, most clearly. It's when you kind of stand outside yourself, look at yourself and say, well, there's me and I could do A and that would be good for these. I could do B, right? And we tend to, most of the time when we're being very instinctive, we almost feel like our free will is being, it, 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 we're, we're, we're operating on some sort of just autopilot. It's not really us. Is that what I'm describing familiar? Yes or, or can no? Can you say the last part again about the? So when, when we're when we're going on auto when, when we're going on instinct on autopilot, right? We often feel like it's not us free will. It's like something has come over us, right? Okay. So the patriarchs, they their free will w was not manifest through right, and horses don't have free will. Their 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 free will was not manifest by by this kind of ego rationalization mode. It was their free will was was something that was much deeper than that, and to an outside observer who hasn't experienced this, it wouldn't seem very free at all. Because we associate freedom with like standing aside and making choices and rationalizing. That's how we experience it. But the reason why it's free is because at the essence of free will is that things come from yourself. It's self-driven. Nobody is coercing you into it. And that essential point of free will they had. Now, that's a very different from our experiences. We rarely experience free will that way, where we feel totally autonomous, totally self-motivated, and we're not, and there's no like rationalization of what we want for ourselves and like that that, you know, um, and again, I'm using ego in a, in a positive sense, right? This is something, for instance, the reason why we say kids don't really have free will, I mean, they have it in potential, but not in actuality, is they don't have a sufficient ego development. They don't have sufficient ability to say, this is me, I can see myself apart from reality, apart from the situation, and evaluate what I want to do. But the idea that there's a way of experiencing um, autonomy and something coming from yourself that's beyond that is something that most of us have rarely experienced if at all and so it's kind of hard for us 
to, to, to imagine what it's like. We can like make abstract definitions, but it's, it's, in that sense, it's very much like God's free will. I mean, think about it, right? God obviously doesn't sit around and say, well, I could do A, and there are reasons for that, right? He doesn't, he, God doesn't have to weigh the pros and cons because he defines reality, right? So his free will also doesn't have this rationalization quality to it. And one of the things that Chassidus discusses, actually a quite complex discussion in Chassidus, is the difference between the free will of the essential self, which we all have but rarely are fully touching, right? Something that, say, the patriarchs were completely in tune with, versus free will as we normally try and experience it, which is through a process of reasoning and, um, you know, requires a certain degree of ego. And again, I mean ego here in the very positive sense, the thing that allows a person to say, this is me, this is what I've decided, this is what I think is important, you know, things that little kids don't have. Right? And, and just in general, I just want to make a, a gener, general comment, which I, I briefly touched on, but I think it's an important thing in learning, in learning anything, but especially Chassidus. If you have a particular thing and you have stages that are before it and then stages that are after it, if you've only experienced the stages before and it, the description of after sounds much like the description from before. It's like, like the, a horse doesn't use reason. And I use reason so that I can only think of those two. But if there's something beyond me, beyond the way I'm operating, it, 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 it's hard to imagine what that's like. I mean, you have this, you have this issue, um, you have this issue as well, right? If, you, if, 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 you're not, if you're not married and living, you know, with, and have like your own like life with a spouse and with children, so you've only experienced life really as in part, member of someone else's household or as an autonomous person with no responsibilities towards anyone else, right? And now you're going to go back to being in life with someone else. So like, you're going to back to a child. Now my wife, my spouse is going to boss me around and tell me what to, like, there's this issue that like the other thing isn't like this thing. And in that, in that sense, it's like the first thing, right? But describing what things are not is a very limited description of what it actually is. And that's the thing you find a lot in Chassidus is that, we, we, we talk about what things are not because we have a hard time talking about what they are, but that limits our appreciation of what it really is. So again, this free will thing. Yes, they had free will. No, they didn't sit there with this sense of, 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 of ego and think, should I or shouldn't I? No, that's not how they experienced free will. All right, that, that took longer than five minutes to answer, but I think that was important. Thank you. All right, so tomorrow, God willing, we're going to move on. I'm going to start unpacking those Kabbalistic terms and description of the godly soul, um, and particularly how ultimately getting to, hopefully we'll see if we get that far, how it's different, how it's changed from the godly soul I was originally given to Adam. That, if we get to all that today, tomorrow, great. If not, we always have next week. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi.